Section 58 of the Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ken Paget. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 2, Section 58. Selected Excerpts from On the Heights by Berthold Auerbach, Part 1. The following passages from On the Heights are reprinted by consent of Henry Holt and Company, holders of the copyright of the translation. The Peasant Nurse and the Prince There, my boy, now you've seen the sun. May you see it for seven and seventy years to come, and when they've run their course, may the Lord grant you a new lease of life. Last night they lit millions of lamps for your sake, but they were nothing to the sun up in heaven, which the Lord himself lighted for you this very morning. Be a good boy always, so that you may deserve to have the sun shine on you. Yes, now the angels whispering to you, laugh while you sleep. That's right. There's one angel belongs to you on earth, and that's your mother. And you're mine, too. You're mine indeed. Thus spake Valpurga, the nurse, her voice soft yet full of emotion, while she gazed into the face of the child that lay in her lap. Her soul was already swayed by that mysterious bond of affection which never fails to develop itself in the heart of the foster mother. It is a noble trait in human nature that we love those on whom we can confer a kindness. Their whole life gradually becomes interwoven with our own. Valpurga became oblivious of herself and of all that was dear to her in the cottage by the lake. She was now needed here, where a young life had been assigned to her loving charge. She looked up at Mademoiselle Kramer with beaming eyes and met a joyful glance in return. It seems to me, said Valpurga, that a palace is just like a church. One has only good and pious thoughts here, and all the people are so kind and frank. Mademoiselle Kramer suddenly smiled and replied, My dear child, don't call me child. I'm not a child. I'm a mother. But here in the great world you are only a child. A court is a strange place. Some go hunting, others go fishing. One builds, another paints. One studies a role, another a piece of music. A dancer learns a new step, an author writes a new book. Everyone in the land is doing something, cooking or baking, drilling or practicing, writing, painting, or dancing, simply in order that the king and queen may be entertained. I understand you, said Valpurga, and Mademoiselle Kramer continued. My family has been in the service of the court for sixteen generations. Six would have been the right number, but sixteen sounded so much better. My father is the governor of the summer palace, and I was born there. I know all about the court, and can teach you a great deal. 
and I'll be glad to learn, interposed Valpurga. Do you imagine that everyone is kindly disposed towards you? Take my word for it, a palace contains people of all sorts, good and bad. All the vices abound in such a place. And there are many other matters of which you have no idea, and of which you will, I trust, ever remain ignorant. But all you meet are wondrous polite. Try to remain just as you now are, and when you leave the palace, let it be the same Valpurga you were when you came here. Valpurga stared at her in surprise. Who could change her? Word came that the queen was awake and desired Valpurga to bring the crown prince to her. Accompanied by Dr. Gunther, Mademoiselle Kramer, and two waiting women, she proceeded to the queen's bedchamber. The queen lay there calm and beautiful, and with a smile of greeting turned her face toward those who had entered. The curtains had been partially drawn aside, and a broad, slanting ray of light shone into the apartment, which seemed still more peaceful than during the breathless silence of the previous night. "'Good morning,' said the Queen, with a voice full of feeling. "'Let me have my child.' She looked down at the babe that rested in her arms, and then, without noticing any one in the room, lifted her glance on high and faintly murmured, this is the first time I behold my child in the daylight. All were silent. It seemed as if there was naught in the apartment except the broad, slanting ray of light that streamed in at the window. Have you slept well? inquired the queen. Valpurga was glad the queen had asked a question, for now she could answer. Casting a hurried glance at Mademoiselle Kramer, she said, Yes, indeed. Sleep's the first, the last, and the best thing in the world. She's clever, said the queen, addressing Dr. Gunther in French. Valpurga's heart sank within her. Whenever she heard them speak French, she felt as if they were betraying her, as if they had put on an invisible cap like that worn by the goblins in the fairy tale, and could thus speak without being heard. Did the prince sleep well? asked the queen. Valpurga passed her hand over her face, as if to brush away a spider that had been creeping there. The queen doesn't speak of her child or her son, but only of the crown prince. Valpurga answered, Yes, quite well, thank God. That is, I couldn't hear him, and I only wanted to say that I'd like to act towards the, she could not say, the prince, that is, towards him, as I do with my own child. We began on the very first day. My mother taught me that. Such a child has a will of its own from the very start, and it won't do to give way to it. It won't do to take it from the cradle or to feed it whenever it pleases. There ought to be regular times for all those things. It'll soon get used to that, and it won't harm it either to let it cry once in a while. On the contrary, that expands the chest. Does he cry? asked the queen. The infant answered the question for itself, for it at once began to cry most lustily. Take him in, quiet him, begged the queen. The king entered the apartment before the child had stopped crying. 
He will have a good voice of command, said he, kissing the queen's hand. Valperga quieted the child, and she and Mademoiselle Kramer were sent back to their apartments. The king informed the queen of the dispatches that had been received, and of the sponsors who had been decided upon. She was perfectly satisfied with the arrangements that had been made. When Valpurga had returned to her room and had placed the child in the cradle, she walked up and down and seemed quite agitated. "'There are no angels in this world,' said she. "'They're all just like the rest of us, and who knows but—' She was vexed at the queen. "'Why won't she listen patiently when her child cries? "'We must take all our children bring us, whether it be joy or pain.' She stepped out into the passageway and heard the tones of the organ in the palace chapel. For the first time in her life these sounds displeased her. It don't belong in the house, thought she, where all sorts of things are going on. The church ought to stand by itself. When she returned to the room she found a stranger there. Mademoiselle Kramer informed her that this was the tailor to the queen. Valpurga laughed outright at the notion of a tailor to the queen. The elegantly attired person looked at her in amazement, while Mademoiselle Kramer explained to her that this was the dressmaker to Her Majesty the Queen, and that he had come to take her measure for three new dresses. "'Am I to wear city clothes?' "'God forbid! You're to wear the dress of your neighborhood.' and can order a stomacher in red, blue, green, or any color that you like best. I hardly know what to say, but I'd like to have a workday suit, too. Sunday clothes on weekdays, that won't do. At court one always wears Sunday clothes, and when Her Majesty drives out again, you will have to accompany her. All right, then, I won't object. While he took her measure, Valperga laughed incessantly, and he was at last obliged to ask her to hold still so that he might go on with his work. Putting his measure into his pocket, he informed Mademoiselle Kramer that he had ordered an exact model, and that the master of ceremonies had favored him with several drawings, so that there might be no doubt of success. Finally, he asked permission to see the crown prince. Mademoiselle Kramer was about to let him do so, but Valperga objected. Before the child is christened, said she, no one shall look at it just out of curiosity, and least of all a tailor, or else the child will never turn out the right sort of man. The tailor took his leave. Mademoiselle Kramer, having politely hinted to him that nothing could be done with the superstition of the lower orders, and that it would not do to irritate the nurse. This occurrence induced Valperga to administer the first serious reprimand to Mademoiselle Kramer. She could not understand why she was so willing to make an exhibition of the child. Nothing does a child more harm than to let strangers look at it in its sleep, and a tailor at that. All the wild fun with which in popular songs tailors are held up to scorn and ridicule found vent in Valpurga, and she began singing. 
Just list, ye braves, who love to roam, a snail was chasing a tailor home, and if old Shears hadn't run so fast, the snail would surely have caught him at last. Mademoiselle Kramer's acquaintance with the court tailor had lowered her in Valpurga's esteem, and with an evident effort to mollify the latter, Mademoiselle Kramer asked, does the idea of your new and beautiful clothes really afford you no pleasure? To be frank with you, no. I don't wear them for my own sake, but for that of others who dress me to please themselves. It's all the same to me, however. I've given myself up to them, and suppose I must submit. May I come in? asked a pleasant voice. Countess Irma entered the room. Extending both her hands to Valpurga, she said, "'God greet you, my countrywoman. I am also from the highlands, seven hours' distance from your village. I know it well, and once sailed over the lake with your father. Does he still live?' "'Alas, no. He was drowned, and the lake hasn't given up its dead.' "'He was a fine-looking old man, and you are the very image of him.' I am glad to find someone else here who knew my father. The court tailor, I mean the court doctor, knew him too. Yes, search the land through, you couldn't have found a better man than my father. And no one can help but admit it. Yes, I've often heard as much. May I ask your ladyship's name? Countess Vildenort. Vildenort. I've heard the name before. Yes, I remember my mother's mentioning it. Your father was known as a very kind and benevolent man. Has he been dead a long while? No, he's still living. Is he here, too? No. And as what are you here, Countess? As maid of honor. And what is that? Being attached to the Queen's person, or what in your part of the country would be called a companion. Indeed, and is your father willing to let them use you that way? Irma, who was somewhat annoyed by her questions, said, I wished to ask you something. Can you write? I once could, but I've quite forgotten how. Then I've just hit it. That's the very reason for my coming here. Now, whenever you wish to write home, you can dictate your letter to me, and I will write whatever you tell me to. I could have done that, too, suggested Mademoiselle Kramer timidly, and your ladyship would not have needed to trouble herself. No, the Countess will write for me. Shall it be now? Certainly. But Valpurga had to go to the child. While she was in the next room, Countess Irma and Mademoiselle Kramer engaged each other in conversation. When Valpurga returned, she found Irma, pen in hand, and at once began to dictate. Translation of S. A. Stern The First False Step From On the Heights the ball was to be given in the palace and the adjoining winter garden. The intendant now informed Irma of his plan, and was delighted to find that she approved of it. At the end of the garden he intended to erect a large fountain ornamented with antique groups. 
in the foreground he meant to have trees and shrubbery and various kinds of rocks so that none could approach too closely and the background was to be a grecian landscape painted in the grand style irma promised to keep his secret suddenly she exclaimed we are all of us no better than lackeys and kitchen maids we are kept busy stewing, roasting, and cooking for weeks in order to prepare a dish that may please their majesties. The intendant made no reply. Do you remember, continued Irma, how, when we were at the lake, we spoke of the fact that man possessed the advantage of being able to change his dress and thus to alter his appearance? While yet a child, masquerading was my greatest delight. The soul wings its flight in callow infancy. A bal costume is indeed one of the noblest fruits of culture. The love of coquetry which is innate with all of us displays itself there undisguised. The intendant took his leave. While walking away, his mind was filled with his old thoughts about Irma. No, said he to himself, such a woman would be a constant strain and would require one to be brilliant and intellectual all day long she would exhaust one said he almost aloud no one knew what character irma intended to appear in although many supposed that it would be as victory since it was well known that she had stood for the model of the statue that surmounted the arsenal they were busy conjecturing how she could assume that character without violating the social proprieties. Irma spent much of her time in the atelier and worked assiduously. She was unable to escape a feeling of unrest far greater than that she had experienced years ago when looking forward to her first ball. She could not reconcile herself to the idea of preparing for the fit so long beforehand, and would like to have had it take place in the very next hour, so that something else might be taken up at once. The long delay tried her patience. She almost envied those beings to whom the preparation for pleasure affords the greatest part of the enjoyment. Work alone calmed her unrest. She had something to do, and this prevented the thoughts of the festival from engaging her mind during the day. It was only in the evening that she would recompense herself for the day's work by giving full swing to her fancy. The statue of victory was still in the atelier and was almost finished. High ladders were placed beside it. The artist was still chiseling at the figure, and would now and then hurry down to observe the general effect, and then hastily mount the ladder again in order to add a touch here or there. Irma scarcely ventured to look up at this effigy of herself in Grecian costume, transformed and yet herself. The idea of being thus translated into the purest of art's forms filled her with a tremor, half joy, half fear. It was on a winter afternoon. Irma was working assiduously at a copy of a bust of Theseus, for it was growing dark. Near her stood her preceptor's marble bust of Dr. Gunther. All was silent, 
Not a sound was heard, save now and then the picking or scratching of the chisel. At that moment the master descended the ladder, and drawing a deep breath, said, There, that will do. One can never finish. I shall not put another stroke to it. I am afraid that retouching would only injure it. It is done. In the master's words and manner, struggling effort and calm content seemed mingled. He laid the chisel aside. Irma looked at him earnestly and said, You are a happy man, but I can imagine that you are still unsatisfied. I don't believe that even Raphael or Michelangelo was ever satisfied with the work he had completed. The remnant of dissatisfaction which an artist feels at the completion of a work is the germ of a new creation. The master nodded his approval of her words. His eyes expressed his thanks. He went to the water tap and washed his hands. Then he placed himself near Irma and looked at her, while telling her that in every work an artist parts with a portion of his life, that the figure will never again inspire the same feelings that it did while in the workshop. Viewed from afar and serving as an ornament, no regard would be had to the care bestowed upon details. But the artist's great satisfaction in his work is in having pleased himself, and yet no one can accurately determine how, or to what extent, a conscientious working up of details will influence the general effect. While the master was speaking, the king was announced. Irma hurriedly spread a damp cloth over her clay model. The king entered. He was unattended, and begged Irma not to allow herself to be disturbed in her work. Without looking up, she went on with her modeling. The king was earnest in his praise of the master's work. The grandeur that dwells in this figure will show posterity what our days have beheld. I am proud of such contemporaries. Irma felt that the words applied to her as well. Her heart throbbed. The plaster which stood before her suddenly seemed to gaze at her with a strange expression. I should like to compare the finished work with the first models, said the king to the artist. I regret that the experimental models are in my small atelier. Does your majesty wish me to have them brought here? If you will be good enough to do so. The master left. The king and Irma were alone. With rapid steps, the king mounted the ladder and exclaimed in a tremulous voice, I ascend into heaven, I ascend to you. Irma, I kiss you, I kiss your image, and may this kiss forever rest upon those lips, enduring beyond all time. I kiss thee with the kiss of eternity. He stood aloft and kissed the lips of the statue. Irma could not help looking up, and just at that moment a slanting sunbeam fell on the king and on the face of the marble figure, making it glow as if with life. Irma felt as if wrapped in a fiery cloud bearing her away into eternity. The king descended and placed himself beside her. His breathing was short and quick. She did not dare to look up. She stood as silent and as immovable as a statue. 
Then the king embraced her, and living lips kissed each other. Translation of S. A. Stern End of section 58 Recording by Ken Paget.